0: Hi, my name is Aisha Small. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Youth and Education Podcast, where I interview interesting guests to explore developments in education, research, and policy that affect young people, primarily in the UK. This podcast is brought to you by the Youth Think and Action Tank, LKM Co.
1: Hello, I'm Dr. Sandbars, LKM Co's Director of Research. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Youth and Education Podcast. In this episode, I talk to Abby Angus our new research trainee about some of the research she's been looking at recently as part of her work and her studies. As always, it's a real mixed bag. We talk about young people's involvement in child and care reviews, admissions and attainment in faith schools and young people's attitudes to celebrity and hard work. Abby has tons of experience working directly with young people and I really enjoyed the chance to shine some of this perspective on our discussion. Thanks again for listening. hope you enjoy it.
0: LKM Co believes society should ensure all children and young people receive the support they need to make a fulfilling transition to adulthood. Find us at lkmco.org. Can we listen to it now?
1: Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in. This week I am speaking to Abby Angus, who is our new research trainee and only joined us very recently.
0: Yes, I think this is month three?
1: Blimey, I can't believe it's month three already. It's
0: gone really quick.
1: And your first LKM Co podcast? It is. It's very exciting. So, given that it's your first podcast and the listeners won't have met you yet via the podcast at least, um, there's a podcast icebreaker question I like to crack out. Intriguing. I always enjoy going through in my head and trying to answer myself. Um, It is the phases of education question, and it basically goes of all the phases of education that you've been through. Okay. So like primary, secondary, sixth form or college or FE, um, okay. university, you're currently studying for a Masters. I am. Right? So of all of those, can you put them in order in terms of the ones that you enjoyed the most? So not how you did or anything <laughs> like that, just enjoyment. Okay.
0: So I have done a lot of education because I have a tendency to start things and then realise maybe it wasn't the best plan. Okay. So I have done both sixth form and college. <laughs> oh, wow, I didn't know that. So you can really compare the two. So I really can. So my memories of primary are fairly faint, but it was it was fine. Um, college, I did art at college, and it was a really enjoyable two years. But I think my master's that I'm doing at the moment, I think, is so far the most enjoyable. Cause it's education, policy and society, mm. and it has so far, all the modules have fitted exactly the kind of things I'm interested in and I've been able to look at what I already know from work and from studying previously and add more theory to it. So it's been mm. really good. That's, that's so I'm not sure how good that is as a ranking, but just college was good and this uni course has been even better.
1: Primary was understandably fairly distant. Yeah, it was okay. a fair time ago. Mm. Oh, that was great that your, your current studies get a vote of confidence. Yeah. For obvious would. reasons. It would be really a little good. bit
0: sad if I was just dragging myself through it, but yeah. I'm enjoying it.
1: Nice. And like Kate, you're studying whilst working and yes. proving to all of us that it can be done.
0: Just about. Um, yeah,
1: so that's, that's really impressive. Anyway, so that's uh, an excellent response <laughs> to the icebreaker. Congratulations. And we've all learnt a bit more about you in the process, which is wonderful. <laughs> um, so, Abby, you've picked three bits of research, some quite recent, others less recent, that you've been mulling over recently. And one of them is quite closely related to some of the work you've been doing on your Masters yes. just in the last few days. So we're going to go through each of them in turn over the next half an hour or so. And I think there are some interesting links between the three. And each of them raise interesting questions about how we do research and have interesting findings in the mix too. Great. So why don't we start at the beginning? So the first piece that you've been looking at recently is called Just Another Person in the Room. Young People's Views on Their Participation in Child and Care Reviews. Can you give us a quick overview of this piece of research and what it set out to look at and what it found?
0: Yep. so um, for young people that are looked after, they have child in care review meetings. So they have one when they first come into care, then one soon afterwards just to check that the things discussed in the initial meeting are being carried out. Then throughout their whole time in care, they'll have a review meeting every six months. So this is looking at their care plan, looking at what support they've got. This can cover anything from their living arrangements through to contact with family, if that's relevant, through to their allowance, education, everything. Um, These are normally chaired by an independent reviewing officer. So this study was looking specifically at how much input young people have into these meetings, and particularly the relationships with the independent reviewing officer. It was looking at young people who had chaired those child-in-care reviews themselves to have more input over what's being discussed in what order, and it found that young people who had chaired them felt more positive about those meetings. Okay. But out of the young people that were involved in the research, not many had actually been that kind of central in the review meetings. So it was looking at more of a, what are the issues with meetings when young people don't have input mm. from that angle.
1: Okay. And this was based on a study of ten young people and a, and similar numbers of social workers and independent reviewing officers, right? So it's like a small a small sample with some detailed
0: even smaller than okay. you thought. the, okay. the aspects of a review that looked at uh, social workers and independent reviewing officers was in a separate write-up. So okay. the write-up that we have in front of us only includes those ten young people.
1: Okay. And so was it, was it a comparison of the experiences of young people who chair their meetings and those who don't then? Am I right in thinking that?
0: Yeah, only one of them had actually chaired them though, so okay. it was more of a discussion around how do young people feel about these meetings and what input do they feel would be positive. And then the one young person that had chaired it speaking to them about their experience chairing it.
1: Their experience of that, okay. You've worked in the past with young people in the care system, right? Have you I ever have. experienced one of these meetings firsthand?
0: Yeah, I sat in on a couple, um, and I think that's why this research particularly jumped out at me, because the ones I'd sat in on, the young person didn't really participate very much. Um, They were there, they were in the room, um, but they weren't really central to the discussion in terms of their views on things, and so this seemed a really interesting way of kind of adapting a system, or at least part of a system that I think maybe did need a bit of input from the young person. Mm,
1: Okay, just the other week we were talking after a meeting about this idea of, it's something that I hadn't really thought about before, that I found really interesting, and you then said that you'd experienced this a lot in the the work that you've done in the past, that distinction between young people not necessarily doing the talking in in these sorts of formal scenarios but having a really strong advocate who's fighting their corner versus young people actually kind of taking control of doing the talking, setting the agenda and and how one might obviously sound preferable to the other, but actually there are uh, for young people who maybe um, aren't equipped or aren't able on that day to stand up or defend themselves as best as someone else might be able to. But there's kind of interesting dynamics there, and I don't know if that was covered here or what your thoughts are on that sort of thing.
0: So one of the suggestions that this report has made is that young people could be involved in writing the agenda for the meetings and discussing who's invited and having more of a hand in the planning. So then I suppose that allows for if on a day, actually it's quite daunting to be in a room full of professionals, particularly if they're all discussing you and your life. Then, actually, the young person, if they've inputted to the planning stages, then that's fine. If, if they have someone that they feel can speak on their behalf and they know that the points that they feel need discussing are going to be discussed, then an advocate could be really helpful in that situation.
1: Because mm. I was surprised to hear that young people can and do chair these meetings. Yeah, they sound me too. Like quite, potentially quite frightening scenarios to be in, or quite, you know, like you said, you're around a table of professionals who are much older than you talking about you.
0: And about things that might not be comfortable. So one of mm. the things that popped up in this report was a young person speaking specifically about how one of the topics that needed to be included within her review meeting was about her risks of sexual exploitation. That's not a comfortable thing to sit around a table and have a lot of adults discussing about you. Mm. So I can see how it, yeah, it would potentially be quite a daunting and scary experience. Yeah, It would take a lot of courage to do that, I think. Yeah. But I think it would ultimately be really beneficial to that young person to mm. feel like they're having things done with them rather than to them.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that's a nice way of summarising it. Um, a last point I wanted to pick up on this piece of research was, for me, it, uh, it instantly came across as one of those really useful bits of research for its ability to say, we there, there's a system and, and processes in place, so, so this aspect of the care system works this way, so these meetings are held, these people attend they this regular and these sorts of things are discussed. Yeah. So that's kind of how it's meant to be. But what we don't always do is talk to um, what we might broadly, more broadly say is like service users, but this young, in this case, young people and say, um, what actually is your experience? So for instance, do you have a good relationship with the social worker outside yeah. of these meetings? And in fact, here, it seems we find that they they don't or they weren't even aware that that was meant to be yeah, the so case.
0: A lot of the young people in the study said that their relationships with their social workers weren't great because they had such a high turnover of social workers. Okay. Whereas their independent reviewing officer, that's normally going to be one designated person throughout their time in care. So there's more opportunity to build a relationship because they're not changing, but less contact. So most independent reviewing officers should be meeting with their young people before these review meetings, but don't. And that was one of the main findings, that actually there is space in the system for young person involvement, but it's just not really being used.
1: The next piece we've got moves us onto the topic of faith schools. Yes. um, (laughs) Which is one of those ever-present debates within the education system. And
0: really messy.
1: Okay, so... There seems to
0: be no kind of set agreement from anyone on exactly what they think and believe around faith schooling.
1: What's messy about this topic?
0: So, so just to give the context of my understanding, I've just finished an essay on social justice and faith school admissions practices. So I've been looking really specifically at who attends faith schools, a small amount about why, and how that links to outcomes um, in faith schools. So they have a reputation for providing good quality education. They normally. Generally, people believe that they'll be quite supportive environments Mm. and their attainment results usually support the good education reputation. So they have generally better results for their pupils at the end of Key Stage 4 than in other state-maintained non-faith schools. So what I was specifically looking at is basically why. (laughs) Because a lot of research over the last few years has been pointing out that actually they have fewer free school meal eligible young people, Mm. fewer students at SEN, and their pupil populations are generally less representative of their local area than in non-faith schools. So I've been coming at it from a how does this fit with social justice angle, which is quite niche. Interesting. Um, Yeah, really, really interesting. I've really Mm. enjoyed the reading around it, but it seems that there's this weird situation where... Faith schools existed outside of the state for a very long time. They're some of the earliest forms of schools in the UK. And then when the Education Act made secondary schools uh, compulsory, then there was this odd situation where there wasn't quite enough schools for the country. So they needed more. So a deal was struck with the church where their schools would become state-maintained, either voluntary-aided or voluntary-funded. And in exchange, they would receive government funding. So it's kind of stemming from this, someone referred to it as a historical compromise. Okay. So it kind of seems to stem from that, where we're in this situation where uh, one third of our maintained schools in the country are faith schools. Right. So we do need them in the system, <laughs> otherwise we'll have pupils without places. Mm-hmm. But then when you bring in things around, the government are funding it, but it is specifically catering for one faith. Mm-hmm then that gets a bit more complicated. So mm. then you have the inclusion of different types of faith schools. So there's Jewish schools, there's Muslim schools, there's Hindu schools and Sikh schools in the country, which are also government-funded, mm. because that seems fair if people that are Church of England can send their children to a Church of England school, then surely people who are Sikh should have that option too.
1: Mm. Well, they 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 form a far smaller part of the pie, don't yes. you? The, the, the vast yeah. majority of faith schools are CV Catholic, right? Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah, and so there's tiny numbers of non-Christian ones. The Christian faiths are very much in the majority. Okay. But still, in a pluralistic society, we need to have different options of schools, but Mm. then you get into interesting debate about who attends them. So in Christian schools, you'll see large populations, particularly in some areas of non-Christian pupils, Mm. and that's good, and it works. But then how likely are we to see non-Muslim students in a Muslim school? Mm. So it's that's what I meant by messy. It mm. seems to be people have views that maybe are slightly contested mm. and stretched.
1: Mm. And it's part of that because we know that the intake of faith schools isn't representative of all schools. Um, or it's, it, it's definitely skewed, as you were saying, towards... Uh, non-FSM eligible kids, kids with high prior attainment and yeah. their the attainment of those schools is on yeah. average better. But others would say well that's kind of the whole point. They are established for particular types of people. But and then I suppose the, the question in the middle is are there links between kids of particular religious backgrounds and their kind of their prior attainment, their their ability
0: for yeah. instance, you know? So I found some really interesting research over the weekend saying that in a lot of... So Sharon Byfield did research into black boys that achieve. So kind of flipping the usual narrative over and looking at for the young black boys that Mm. are achieving really well, what are those factors? Mm. And she found that for a lot of people, if they came from religious families or had religious identities of their own, that was a kind of protective factor for attainment. And so she was looking at, is that down to kind of personal choices that those young people are made or is it due to the communities around them? And it's probably a bit of both. Mm -hmm. So that's another interesting... Yeah, is it the schools putting in the work or is it the fact that they've got pupils from religious families who might do slightly better anyway?
1: Mm. And then potentially inflated by a factor that has been documented in the research of middle class selections and middle class people kind of...
0: definitely. Essentially
1: jumping on an already successful school and then inflating its results further still. Um, well, that's interesting. Um, what I liked about <clears throat> some of the research that you flagged here is that it unpicks. I always like things that go beyond the average. Yes. so it we talk a lot about faith schools on average. Yeah. Kind of do better than other schools, the non-faith schools, um, but actually, it's more of a mixed picture when you unpick schools by faith. But the I think you found that data quite hard to find, didn't you? It's it's less easy to actually unpick it, particularly for some of the smaller groups, right? I did,
0: and this is why the piece of data that I've used as research article number two, it's from 2009, Mm. because it was the only research I found, or at least the only DFE data I found, that looked at the specific identities of faith schools Mm. and broke it down more than just, this is how faith schools are doing. So it had Mm. information on attainment by religious identity, and also on free school meal eligibility of pupils based on religious identity. Mm. And I found that really interesting, but I think, I think whereas this makes interesting reading kind of at a glance, I think perhaps it isn't that useful
1: okay. in the long run,
0: as it, it's from 2009 mm. and the number of non-Christian faith schools in 2009 was tiny. So I think if the same data was released now, it would be a lot more interesting and a lot more useful Mm -hmm. because we have far greater diversity of faith schools. Mm -hmm. And then I think we could look at patterns as well. So in 2009, I think it was the only schools that had a higher proportion of pupils eligible for free school meals than the national average out of faith schools were Muslim schools. Mm -hmm. But there were so few Muslim schools in that year that I think we'd need to go back and look at it now and say, is that still the case or was it due to specific identities around those specific schools. Mm. So it might be the area they were in or something.
1: Mm. Okay, so that average picture of faith schools in the round is going to be slightly less skewed by Christian denominations than it was 10 years ago because the the pie has been adjusted slightly.
0: Still not... Particularly. It's no. still the vast majority of faith schools are Christian. Mm. By Christian I mean Catholic or Church of England or Methodist as well. They have some schools. Okay. Um, but it's a little bit more representative now.
1: Mm. No, really interesting stuff to look at. And it's, I think that flags one of those perennial issues when you're looking at research that sometimes you'll be reading something or looking at some data and you think, oh, what I really want to do is, is to just cut it by this extra category yeah. or, or unpick this by... By gender or ethnicity yeah. or by faith and then you can't and you have to make a compromise by using older data for yeah. instance or yeah. by dropping something else that you were considering and that's an eternal issue with research and it's quite, uh, it can be really frustrating um, when you've got particular yeah. questions in mind. But I it's, it's really
0: neat, wanted to look specifically at types of faith school mm. and how faith identities may cause things to vary in who yeah. gets into these schools but... It wasn't completely doable.
1: No, but it gives that, And that was your assignment over the weekend, right? It was.
0: That was my weekend. I was writing about social justice and face school admissions.
1: Nice. Well, we look forward in a future podcast to uh, hearing how you get on. Hopefully i you get. I'll never talk of it again, otherwise. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll soon know if things went well, okay. Um, okay, so on to our third and last piece. Um, which was right up my street because it brought back all kinds of memories from when I was working on my, my PhD and looking at young people's aspirations. And this, uh, as I was saying to you earlier, I'm really glad that you came across this because I remember learning about this project several years ago, but then I finished my PhD and didn't come back to see what they'd actually found. So this is one strand um, from a project looking at young people and celebrity. Um, this piece was called We Can Get Everything We Want If We Try Hard young people's celebrity and hard work and yeah, it was really interesting to see some of the things that they found. What what methods did they use in this study and what were they setting out to explore?
0: So this was, as you've mentioned, part of a far larger bit of research. So this specific study used group interviews of young people aged 14 to 17 um, in a variety of different areas across the country. Um, I think 24 interviews in total okay um, with 148 young people over those 24 groups
1: and what were they what were they talking to them about
0: So this seemed to be kind of looking at celebrity but also looking at aspirations and how work is viewed and then kind of brought them together towards the end mm. so it started out by looking at hard work and how much, is this valued by young people? Mm. Because traditionally studies have found that young people don't want to be seen as putting in hard work at school. So while when they leave compulsory education, they might put in a lot of effort and be proud of that, previously it had been more of a wanting to seem like it was effortless. So this was quite interesting because it started out by saying actually the young people they've spoken to don't seem to be kind of hiding their work as much, so they're more pleased to be able to say, like, I, I have tried for this, I have put in the effort and it shows. Mm-hmm. So they linked this to kind of wider political climate. So it was linked to the kind of Skyvers and strivers dialogue that we've seen in the media. It okay. was linked to more school testing and more assessments mm-hmm. than perhaps previous generations had seen. Okay and how actually there's not as much of a guarantee of work after education anymore. Mm. So perhaps all of these things are kind of playing into this idea that actually you're going to need to work hard.
1: And so is it, did they find then that young, am I right in thinking that young, they found young people were kind of happier to embrace and be open about ideas of, working hard than previous generations of young people might have
0: been? That's what they found and that they wanted to deserve the success that they were getting and wanted to be able to show that they deserved it by working for it. So the second kind of strand of it was looking at celebrities and looking at which celebrities young people looked up to and which that they didn't and found that a lot of the names mentioned as people that were kind of held up as being good examples of celebrity were people that had worked hard But then it was this kind of other look at it where it was saying that actually perhaps young people aren't really taking notice of the institutional barriers in people's way because they're so focused on individual success. Mm -hmm. And if I work hard, then I can overcome everything. And perhaps that might not be realistic and it might put the pressure on people that aren't achieving as a kind of, well, this is a personal failing on you. You haven't worked hard enough. So it kind of links to ideas of deserving and undeserving poor, which I thought was really interesting, mm. <laughs> considering it's about celebrities and hard work. Mm.
1: That is interesting, and it's, this definitely taps into a, mm. kind of a rich theme of research at the moment and what people kind of tend to define as like individualising discourses yeah. or the narratives that kind of put more of the weight of how you do as a person on your own. Kind of efforts and talents. Yeah, than rather than looking done.
0: at what's going on around you. Mm.
1: And it's, I think that's, that's often a debate which kind of, um, one of the divides I think certainly is between people who are more or less willing to countenance the role of kind of structural factors in both yeah. supporting and sometimes holding young people back. But this piece seems to cross that divide in an interesting way, in and I think it's, you know, we all know kind of working hard at stuff is pretty important yeah of course uh, it's definitely a part of the piece and kind of achieving things or getting on in life or just kind of making things happen that are important to you um but that that's a very kind of individual yeah thing but actually what this piece is suggesting is that or what, what it made me realize is that young people's ability to work hard is kind of kind of rest on their, them looking around them and seeing that that's an okay thing to do. And then you're yeah. instantly in a more kind of structural territory And that what are the norms in your school? What do other young people think? As a society, do we make it okay to be open about working hard?
0: And then maybe looking at failure as well. So if okay. you've worked hard and it goes wrong, why? <clears throat> Is that all on you or are there mm-hmm. other things in the way? And then how do we kind of collectively move past those obstacles rather than putting them all on individuals.
1: What else did they find that you thought was surprising or that you thought was kind of self-evident in the young people that you've you've worked with over the years?
0: So I haven't worked in a mainstream school for many, many years which means that the young people I've come across have been generally from groups that are marginalised or facing structural disadvantage Mm. so I think this was quite interesting for me because a lot of my work has been around structural disadvantage and so the idea that an individual can on their own overcome everything doesn't sit with me and the experiences of young people I've worked with Mm. but that is a really interesting bit of background knowledge to have as well that actually even though there are groups of young people facing massive obstacles to participation, if the general kind of belief of the moment is that hard work can help, Mm. particularly amongst maybe more mainstream groups of young people, um, then it's just quite interesting to know that that's happening in wider society. Yeah, And then maybe look at how groups can inform each other as well, because maybe there needs to be more space. For discussion around well actually failure isn't always on the individual.
1: Yeah and I suppose that does that feed to something into discussions around resilience or more a more resilient approach to things like aspirations and futures where we you can talk about kind of aiming high and succeeding yeah. without it being kind of all or nothing.
0: Yeah definitely and maybe young people having kind of other options mm-hmm. so yeah of course aim for exactly what you want to do and work hard and look at practical goals that will help you reach that but maybe also look at well actually if that doesn't go right it's it's not the end of the world there are lots of other things that can be done and there are lots of other ways to work towards what you need and what you want.
1: Mm. I think there's a really interesting kind of intergenerational point there as well you were talking about kind of groups informing each other Mm. and I think sometimes we forget that um that the way that we as adults approach the world of work, and for some adults that will be teaching because that's their occupation, is probably going to be really different to where the, the next generation, you know, the current current young people, the next generation of older adults will will treat ideas of work and success yeah. um, and, and achievement. And in some ways, I think the way that we see those things is not necessarily healthy um, and probably contributes to poor mental health. Um, and other ways, it's also not set up, for instance, to deal very well with chop and change careers, which are no, increasingly
0: the norm. No, which are happening more and more now.
1: Right. And so I guess the next generation of young people are going to need probably a different way of looking at things like success in the world of work and what achievement achievement means that probably is a bit more resilient to change. Yeah, perhaps. and
0: perhaps like, kind of acknowledging small successes, because if you're not spending your whole career working towards one aim, maybe you need to be better at picking up on actually this year I've done that and that's great
1: mm. I enjoyed each of those pieces um, <laughs> I'm glad and it's great to see that they're kind of feeding into your into your current studies as well as we said we'll we'll come back at a few days <laughs> and find out how that... we'll see
0: I might never talk about faith schools again
1: <laughs> <laughs> if, if you don't we, we might have kind of hazard a guess as to why um, it's also really nice in there to pick up on some of your own personal experience of of working with young people in some of these sorts of settings which I think is Invaluable. Um so thanks very much Abby. Thank you and, for having me. It's been uh, lovely. Not at all. And we will see you again on a future podcast sometime soon.
0: Wonderful. I look forward to it. Hey people. I love making this podcast. If you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy making it, there's a few things that you can do. One, subscribe. Press the subscribe button on iTunes or wherever you listen to it. Two, share. Share this episode with somebody who you know will find it interesting or is affected by the specific issues covered. Free review. Write a review or leave a comment. Also feel free to contact us via the links on the show notes. Thanks a lot. Bye.